Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're looking at the second half of Revelation chapter 9. We're essentially finishing up the seven trumpet judgments this morning. So we remember this is the second wave in a repeating cycle of seven judgments being poured out. This started back in chapter 6 with the seal judgments. And then in chapter 8, we saw the first four trumpet judgments. Last week, we looked at the fifth trumpet judgment, which was the opening of the bottomless pit. If you haven't been with us for those particular studies, I do always like to take a moment and let you know where you can find those studies. So if you go to our website, ccubacity.com, or go to our YouTube channel, uh, you'll find all of those previous studies. In fact, while you're at our YouTube channel, go ahead and subscribe. You'll get notified anytime we upload new Bible teaching content. But the reason that I like to mention that is because I believe context is so important when it comes to studying the Bible. And if you are just joining us for the first time this morning, you are coming in in the middle of an incredibly intense time in human history. And we'll see as we go along, that's an understatement. This is the Great Tribulation. This is the last seven-year period of human history on earth right before Jesus Christ comes back to take full possession of the planet and set up his kingdom where he reigns and rules in perfect righteousness for a thousand years. By the way, for those of us in Christ, we get to reign and rule with him during that time. Hallelujah. But this will be a time of great tribulation, Jesus says, such as has not been since the beginning of the world, nor ever shall be, with signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, the seas and waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which will come upon the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And we're going to see some of those very things happening this morning. But this morning, the sixth trumpet judgment and the activity we see taking place around the great river Euphrates. Now, we'll talk a few more in a few more minutes about the Euphrates River. Uh, but for starters, this is one of the longest and probably, uh, well, in Western Asia, one of the longest and most historically significant rivers. It's about 1,700 miles long. It starts in southeast Turkey flows through Turkey, Syria, Iraq, eventually dumps into the Persian Gulf. It's mentioned all throughout the Bible. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about it in a few moments. Uh, but let's jump right in. Chapter 9, verse 13. John says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. We've talked before about how the book of Revelation is the most Old Testament book of the New Testament. And there are many allusions or foreshadowings in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple that point to this real heavenly throne room that is revealed for us in the book of Revelation. These verses are another example of that. The altar in the tabernacle and temple is specifically referred to as the golden altar in Numbers chapter 411. Exodus 22, 27, verse 2, excuse me, instructs, you shall make its horns on its four corners. Ezekiel's millennial temple refers to the four horns of the altar twice in Ezekiel chapter 43. Now, back at the beginning of chapter 8, John spoke of seven angels who stand before God and another angel with a golden censer who stood at this altar. John says this angel was given much incense, 
that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And in chapter 9 this morning, John hears a voice emanating from this throne. So it may be Jesus himself. More likely, it's God the Father. And this voice says, To the sixth angel, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now again, back at the beginning of chapter 7, John saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. And we said it was possible that those four angels, or those four winds, could be the same as the four horsemen that we read about in chapter 6. I'd say the same thing is possible again this morning. These four angels of Revelation chapter 9 could be the same four angels of Revelation chapter 7, which could, in turn, make them the same as the four horsemen of chapter 6. Now, if that's true, this would illustrate yet again how many of the events in the book of Revelation are not happening sequentially, but are happening simultaneously, like layers stacked upon a cake. Uh, I put that image up there to make you hungry for the fellowship later today. Uh, the other possibility is that these are yet four more different angels who have been designated for the specific purpose of being used as part of God's judgment during the Great Tribulation, and that's closer to what chapter 9, verse 15 seems to imply. John writes how these four angels had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year and were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, a lot of times people will ask the question, are these good angels or are these bad angels? It's hard to imagine uh, a group of four angels who are good being described as being bound. It's probably even more difficult to imagine them unleashing a series of plagues that result in a third of mankind being killed. Based on the current population estimate for the planet, that's close to two billion people. And if this is on top of the death toll we've already read about in the book of Revelation, we could be talking about 50% of the earth, Earth's population being dead by this point. It's absolutely staggering. Now, in the first half of chapter 9, which is where we were last week, we saw this demo, de demonic locust-like horde being released from the bottomless pit, or the abyss, the abyssos in the Greek. Talked all about it last week, what it is, where it might be, when it might open. And we said that those beings are probably the angels that both Peter and Jude refer to when they mention the angels who sinned, who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, and how God has cast them down to hell, or Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for the judgment of the great day. And there are some similarities between that group that we looked at last Sunday morning and the army of 200 million that John's about to describe for us this morning. So let's start reading in verse 16. John writes, now the number of the army of the horsemen uh, that was released with these four angels bound at the river Euphrates. John says, I heard the number of them, 200 million. And thus I saw the horses in the vision those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow, 
And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. And by these three plagues, verse 18 says, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Now, like we said last week, I don't think that John is necessarily trying to provide us with a literal description of what he sees here. I believe he's doing the best he can while writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to provide us with a first century description of these things. And clearly, it is grotesque, it is bizarre, it is otherworldly. David Guzik writes, this is a powerful picture of horror, destruction, and demonic association. Robert H. Mounts says, exactly how this takes place remains unknown until disclosed by history itself. But there are some similarities between this description that we're reading this morning and what we read last week of the locust-like beings coming from the bottomless pit. For instance, both groups are described as being horses or like horses. One group has teeth like lion's teeth. Another has heads of lions. Both groups are wearing what John calls breastplates. Both groups have tails, one like scorpions, the other like serpents. So they seem similar but there are differences. For one thing, the beings, the locust-like beings from the bottomless pit, though they're given power as the scorpions of the earth have power, verse 5 specifically says they were not given authority to kill people, but only to torment them for five months. But verse 15 this morning says the four angels bound at the river Euphrates were released to kill a third of mankind. Another key difference is that the angels released this morning are not bound in the bottomless pit. They are instead bound at the great river Euphrates. Coming back to the Euphrates River, it's mentioned all throughout the Bible, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. It's specifically mentioned by name as one of the four rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden. So it's an ancient river, and it is interesting how often the Euphrates, or the region around it, figures into the birth, we might say, of world happenings. For instance, in Genesis 2, verses 10 through 14, the Euphrates is associated with the first sin. In Genesis 4, it's associated with the first murder. In Genesis 10, it's associated with the first dictatorship. In Genesis 11, it's associated with the first organized revolt against God. In Genesis 14, it's associated with the first war confederation. In Genesis 15, the Euphrates is specifically the frontier of the land promised by God to Abraham. And on top of that, the Euphrates was a landmark of ancient Babylon, and it was the boundary of the Roman Empire. And both of those ideas, Babylon and a revived Roman Empire, both figure heavily into our understanding of end times. Now, we're going to talk more about this idea as we come into later chapters, but the book of Revelation seems to predict an end times revival, we might say, of both the Babylonian religious system and the Babylonian commercial system. John Walford writes, prophetically, 
Babylon refers to a literal city or sometimes a religious system or sometimes a political system, but all stemming from the evil character of historic Babylon. Merrill C. Tenney writes, Babylon was the seat of the civilization that expressed organized hostility to God. To the Jews, Babylon was the essence of all evil, the embodiment of cruelty, the foe of God's people, and the lasting type of sin, carnality, lust, and greed. David Guzik writes, Babylon is associated with organized idolatry, blasphemy, and the persecution of God's people. Now, the Institute for Creation Research, ICR, has an interesting theory about this, and I'm just going to offer this this morning. Here's what they write about these four angels bound at the river Euphrates. They say these four angels are also satanic angels, for they have been bound because of past sin, but they have not, like the previous group that we looked at last week, been bound in the bottomless pit, but in the great river Euphrates. So apparently their particular sin was at a different time and place. Perhaps this particular horde of fallen angels had been associated with the first great human rebellion after the flood, when Nimrod led mankind to rebel against God at Babel, located on the Euphrates. As a result, God scattered the people around the world, confusing their languages, but the invisible host of heaven, who had instigated this rebellion, and whom Nimrod had sought to worship in his great temple tower built unto heaven, that is, with a shrine dedicated to the host of heaven, the angels and their starry realms, had not been scattered. Rather, they were confined to the Euphrates where they had established their base. So in other words, <clears throat> their suggestion, like we talked about last week, is that the angels of Genesis chapter 6 who left their own abode, who went after strange flesh and had intimate relations with women in an attempt to corrupt the human race, those angels are bound in the bottomless pit. But they suggest there is this second group of sinning angels who also attempted to corrupt mankind, primarily through knowledge and religious corruption at the Tower of Babel, and they are the ones who have been bound at the great river Euphrates, which is, of course, the location of ancient Babylon. Now, to take this one step further, some people suggest these are the Watchers. Okay, now if you're familiar with the concept of the Watchers, most people's minds go immediately to the Darren Aronofsky fiasco, Noah, and the way they're depicted as these big stone creatures. <clears throat> and it is true. Um, that this idea of the watchers, it's primarily an extra-biblical idea, okay? So I'm putting out that qualifier. They appear most predominantly in the apocryphal books of Enoch, uh, the Book of Giants, also the Jewish Book of Jubilees, and the Damascus document, which is among the Dead Sea Scrolls. But what most people don't know is that the term watchers does actually appear in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, who, remember, was the king of Babylon, says, I saw a dream which made me afraid there was a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. He says, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. And in Daniel's explanation of the dream, he acknowledges, inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. 
So we know that angels, or they probably would have referred to them as gods, figured very heavily into the Babylonian religious system. <clears throat> Excuse me. Scholars view these watchers, or these holy ones, as showing an influence of Babylonian religion. According to Professor Jonathan Bendove of the University of Haifa, the myth of the watchers began in Lebanon when Aramaic writers tried to interpret the imagery on Mesopotamian or Babylonian stone monuments without being able to read their Akkadian text. Amar Anus from the University of Tartu says the watchers were intended as representations of the Mesopotamian angels who gave wisdom to man, which is portrayed as a corrupting influence. The NIV Cultural Background Study Bible writes about these giant composite hybrid creatures well known in Assyrian and Babylonian art, the colossal Assyrian composite creatures unearthed during archaeological excavation at the site of ancient Nimrod, <clears throat> where they guarded the doorways to the palace. And if you can see this, what's a trip, is that in these depictions, these creatures have the body of a horse, the face of a man, hair like women, wearing a crown, and a breastplate with a tail, and something at the end of the tail, and all of these things are described in Revelation chapter 16. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that the specific watchers mentioned in Daniel chapter 4 are the fallen angels of passages like Revelation chapter 9 or other passages. I'm only demonstrating that this particular class of angels, we might say, or rank of angels do exist from Daniel chapter 4. And so ICR acknowledges, as do I, this is not stated in Scripture, but seems a plausible explanation of why Babylon and its environs, including Baghdad, which has been more prominent than Babylon during the church age as a center of the Islamic rebellion against Christ, seems ever since to have been the greatest enemy of God and his people. In fact, I think this is interesting too. We've noted before how many elements seem to have been lifted directly from the Bible and written into Islam. And in Islam, there is a hadith that prophesies about the unearthing of a gold mountain beneath the Euphrates River before the apocalypse. It is said to be one of the future signs of the coming judgment day. The earth will open up and swallow people. Smoke will appear. So, as I say, we'll dig into this a little bit more in future studies. But for now, I just think it's interesting how the Euphrates River, in the same way that it figures so prominently into some of the earlier happenings of God's dealings with mankind, also figures quite heavily into the end times God dealing with mankind. Uh, in fact, I'll just take it one step further. I figure I've gone this far. Uh, <clears throat> if I refer once again to the different camera angle theory of the book of Revelation, it's possible that this sixth trumpet judgment is happening in conjunction with the sixth bowl judgment of chapter 16, because there we read how the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared, 
to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. And you can go online and you can do all kinds of research about this, about how the Euphrates River is drying up. According to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Iraqi Ministry of Water Resources warns that the Euphrates River could be dry by 2040. ANF News reports that the waters of the Euphrates River have also decreased significantly as a result of the water war that is waged by the Turkish state against the people of Syria. The Turkish state, which has been using the Euphrates water as a weapon against the Syrians for years, cuts off the waters flowing into Iraq and Syria to a large extent. According to an agreement that was signed between the governments in 1987, Turkey is supposed to deliver 500 cubic meters of water per second to Syria. They do not comply with this agreement. They're only delivering 200 cubic meters of water per second currently. These images are captured on the banks of the Euphrates River, and they reveal that a large part of the river has dried up. And this is interesting too. The receding waters of the Euphrates River have revealed ancient archaeological sites, some of which were unknown until now. The director of Anbar Province's Antiquities Department says that at least 75 archaeological sites had been partially excavated, running the gamut of civilizations from 3000 BC to the Sumerian and Roman periods. Strange structures now jut out of the water, and a tunnel hidden under the Euphrates, goes down quite deep. Most of the tunnel still remains intact. As mentioned in folklore, Queen Semiramis, the semi-legendary Lydian Babylonian wife of Nimrod, built this secret tunnel. According to one popular legend in Iraq, one can reach a different world full of mysteries through this tunnel. The Iraqis believe that only angels reside in that world as they have been living beneath the Euphrates for years. Now, look, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, okay? Pun intended. Um, and you want to be careful because you can go on YouTube particularly and you can find all kinds of videos where they claim that they're hearing the sounds of trapped angels coming out from underneath the Euphrates. And I don't place a lot of stock in that. But you can see from some of these images, how, as Revelation 16, 12 says, if the Euphrates were dried up, it could prepare a way of the kings from the east being prepared. The phrase kings from the east is literally translated kings of the rising sun. David Guzik writes, if the Euphrates River were dried up and made a road, massive armies from the east, nations such as China, India, and Japan, could move westward with ease. In fact, one of the reasons that people suggest these judgments might be working in conjunction with one another is that you take that phrase, the way of the kings from the east, in chapter 16. Well, back in chapter 9, verse 16, John says the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. Back in 1965, China claimed to have an army of 200 million. And people were like, oh, there it is, right? A couple of things about that. China's claim to have an army and militia of 200 million was never verified. It's also worth noting that the total number 
of all the armies involved on both sides during World War II was only 70 million. So it's really difficult to imagine an earthly army the size of 200 million. We should also point out, too, that when the kings from the east are gathered in Revelation chapter 16, they're not gathered to make war against mankind. Revelation 19 says the kings of the earth and their armies were gathered together to make war against him who sat on the white horse and his army, meaning Jesus Christ. So what John sees this morning is probably best interpreted as a second horde of demonic beings being released upon the earth. And if these judgments, the sixth trumpet judgment and the sixth bowl judgment, if they are working in conjunction with one another, I'd say they're probably just close to or at or around the same time, not necessarily the same thing. Now, there is an interesting Old Testament passage that may correlate to the fifth and sixth trumpets. I'm just going to read this to you from Joel chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. We'll put the passage for you on the big screen. But as we read through this, see if you can spot any similarities. In Joel 2, verse 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a people coming, great and strong, the like of whom have never been seen, nor will there ever be any such after them. For a fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them people writhe in pain, faces are drained of color, they run like mighty men, they climb the wall like men of war. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. In both of these passages, in Joel chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 16, you have darkness and clouds and smoke, a great army with the appearance like horses, a fire devouring before them, a noise like chariots, people in pain, the sun and moon darkening, and even the reference to the land like the Garden of Eden, it makes me think of this land surrounding the great river Euphrates. Now, sadly, the section that we're looking at this morning concludes in verse 20 with John saying, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Isn't it crazy to think that these people are worshiping demons when demons are the ones who will be tormenting them? But we could say that's true of all of the things mentioned here. The gold, the silver, the brass, the stone, the wood, the murder, the anger, the sexual immorality, 
Psalm 115 says, Their idols are silver and gold. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. They, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have pierced themselves through with many arrows. Romans 1.24 says God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator and received in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Sin is a trap. It is a trap. And God is not mocked, Scripture says. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so in Romans chapter 6, Paul pleads with us. He says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? You see, you become a slave of sin and it ends up destroying you. Just ask the children of Israel when they come in to the promised land. The Lord tells them, he says, go through and completely drive out the enemy. And you remember, you can go through the opening chapters of the book of Judges, and almost every single one of the tribes decides not to completely drive out the enemies of the land. They decide to leave a few of them there and put them under tribute and make them slaves. And you know what happens? Almost every single one of those people groups comes back, ends up being stronger than the children of Israel, and puts them into slavery. That's exactly what sin does. And so Paul says, in the same way that we presented our members as slaves of uncleanness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness, because he asks, what fruit did we have in the things of which we, were we are now ashamed? He says, what good was it? When we spent our lives living for sin, what fruit was there? He says, the end of those things is death, but now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You see, these people in Revelation chapter 9, this third of mankind this morning that we're reading about, they now know this truth. They understand that the result of sin is death. But God does not want you and I to know that. God wants you and I to know that the gift of God is eternal life. That's why he's given us time to repent. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God does not desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anybody to die. 
Ezekiel 18.33, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways, says the Lord, for why should you die? You see, that's the invitation. That's the invitation this morning to come to Jesus and live, to know life and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and all the fruits of the Spirit, to abandon the fruitless pursuit of sin and to turn to the life-giving stream of Jesus Christ. Will you come to Him this morning? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you as Kayla comes up and closes us with a couple of songs. I'm going to ask everyone in the room to respect what we're doing here. Do not start having conversations. Do not start checking your phone. If you're going to do that, quietly get up and go into the hallway. But the Holy Spirit of God right now is trying to draw people to Jesus. Can we enter this time sacredly, reverently, with a holiness about it and give the Holy Spirit, an opportunity to work. Prayer partners are going to be here. If you'd like to come forward and have someone pray with you, Father, we just ask now, in the holy name of Jesus, that your Spirit would draw people to yourself, that people's names today would be written in the book of life, that people would be regenerated, born again, by the Holy Spirit of God, to live unto you to bear fruit to the glory of your name and escape these things that are coming upon the earth. We love you. We bless you that you have taken the time, Father, that you have thought so much of us as your creation to write these things down, to tell us what's going to happen, but to provide a way of escape in the same way, Lord, that during the plagues of Egypt, those who had the blood of the lamb applied to the doorposts and the lentil of their home, we know today that if we have the blood of Jesus applied to our hearts, we will be saved. And so we pray this morning, Lord, draw people to yourself. Do a great work here. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.